Hello and welcome to Matters of Experience. My name is Abigail Honor. And I'm Brenda Cowan. The title of our show, Where's the Bathroom, may seem odd, but in our work, the bathroom is an excellent subject to represent the difference of opinion, let's call it, that we experience designers have with architects. I think it's a good place to start exploring the sometimes tumultuous relationship we have with each other. Brenda, I'm referring to the stereotype that the architect thinks people come to see the building and we think they come to visit the content. Well, with our special guest today, we're certainly going to get the very important architectural perspective so that maybe we can battle the stereotype. But as it regards what the visitor is coming for, I think that they come for both the architecture and the designed experience. We can't separate the two, which is why I think in my experience like yours as well, Abby, it's difficult to understand why it is that the two are often separated when the process is underway. One cannot work well without the other. Yep, completely. And I'm looking forward to today's podcast discussion because I'm very proud to introduce Alex Bittus. Alex, hello. Hello. Alex is the founder of Bureau Bittus, an award-winning international architecture and urban design firm that values cooperation, not competition, and ideas, not egos. Bureau Bittus is 100% employee-owned. I'm very proud of it. He trained as a structural and civil engineer, as well as an architect, and his early days were spent working closely with British architects Tony Kettle and Will Alsop. Alex, I'm going to kick it off with the title of this podcast, Where's the Bathroom? And why the bathroom is illustrative of the battle between the architect and the design firm. And also why it's indicative to a visitor as to the thoroughness and care of the design and the architecture of the building. Alex. What does a bathroom mean to you? Well, in my opinion, uh, the bathroom is the most important room in the building. And when I visit any public buildings, I'm trying to make sure I visit bathroom just to see. In my opinion, it's an indicator of the quality of work. And personally, I had lots of experience designing bathrooms. And at Bureau Beatles, we put a lot of efforts in designing bathrooms. We designed Plata Airport and we spent lots of time designing the bathroom in the the airport. And a few years later, we were doing another airport and I went uh, on the web to search sort of, I would would say, common trends about modern design. And when I typed modern bathroom airport design, I swear quarter of the results that Google threw back at me was the bathroom we designed at Plata Airport. I would never imagine that so many people would take a picture of a bathroom and post it on the web. Look at that. It's not just us obsessed with bathroom, it's the (laughs) users too. I'm so happy about that. Well, I have many bathroom, or as I've been known to call it, loo stories. My most relevant to this conversation is when we are brought on midway through the design of a building and not at the very beginning. And a really prominent architectural firm had provided us with client-approved designs for a five-story building, which was about 10,000 square meters. And it had 
one bathroom. I kid you not. Not one per floor, just one bathroom. We had to have several meetings to explain the importance of more than one bathroom. Clearly, none of these people ever needed to use the loo. Or have children. (laughs) Exactly. Because what I feel some architects forget is that we're creating an experience and it has to be a comfortable experience in the case of museums or, as you mentioned, retail experiences, which means things have to be practical. Nobody really wants to be dragging that child along who's desperate to go to the bathroom up three flights of stairs only to have to stand in a really long line. So I also really enjoy themed bathrooms. And one of the toilet stalls I'd like to highlight is there's five stalls at Liberty Market in Gilbert, Arizona, when each stall, Brenda, reflects the individual contributions that go into running that restaurant. So each one's like designed by a member of the staff and has things like a unique playlist and unique artifacts and photos. So for example, the co-owner and chef there, David Trainer's stall, has recipes, photos of his creations and dangling cooking tools. I love this because it's not just design. It tells you a story while you sit. (laughs) This is so mind-boggling. I am so creating a playlist for my bathroom at home. I've got to tell you, you know, Judy Rand, Museum Great, created the Visitor Bill of Rights back in the 1990s. And the right for a visitor to be comfortable is a top item. Nothing has changed since then. And yet the right to have this level of comfort is still a question, which I find mind-boggling. Alex, what are your thoughts about the rights for visitors to have comfort as a top priority? How is it that you're thinking about things like sight and, pardon the pun, visitor flow? Yes, so one of the key drivers that we consider is visitors' comfort. We do lots of airport design and air travel for some people is is a stressful situation. Uh, What we find that calm sort of calm environment can be created by lighting and natural materials we tend to provide a comfort visual comfort and actually it works it works i must say that um, i'm reading lots of reviews on the web and people are are happy with the environment flow i believe it needs to be predicted it shouldn't be a maze we tend to do a predicted experience predicted flow so people not get lost. They, f- they know where they're going and uh, high ceiling, big rooms, uh, they tend to help. Yeah, we always consider that at our design. Oh, that's interesting. You mentioned high ceilings. So you, you're saying that high ceilings make people feel more comfortable than lower, more sort of cozy ceilings? A lower ceiling tend to provide sort of tension and well that's how i feel yeah yeah high ceiling gives more air you can put a signage easier to observe from a distance so if space allows if design allows if we would we would have a high ceiling definitely let's talk about the visitor flow in the arctic museum that we worked on yes i think you were the first to come up with the idea of the of the museum And I believe that at that point, you didn't have any information about the site. In your vision, you had sort of five areas and those five areas supposed to be five different floors in the building. And when I saw the site, it's actually a thin, narrow site that the building with the five stories or six stories, it actually wouldn't fit with the surrounding. So I was trying to find a way to make it flat 
to feel the sight as much as we can. But I also knew that there has to be a, another area, the common core where we enter, where we live, where the restaurant is, where the auditorium is, cloakroom. So that sixth area has to be somewhere between those five areas. And as the site is thin and long, I put that area right in the middle. And I also was trying to find a way how we visit all the areas by a single floor, entering through and living building through the same area. Because in my opinion, the returning experience is also experience. Yeah. A returning experience in Guggenheim Museum in Manhattan is quite interesting because it's um, a spiral rotunda. You're going up, visiting all the areas, and then to return, you're going back the same route. So I was trying to find a different solution that you shouldn't go through the areas you visited before. So it's a clockwise direction, but shifting the areas would allow us to visit them once and not bypass them on, on your way back. I'd love to zero in even further on the exhibition space and a real classic challenge that can oftentimes come up between the design firm and the client and the architect is on the subject of windows. So when we have collections and when we have artifacts that need to be preserved, that sets up kind of an automatic challenge regarding planning for windows and how that could work within concept and visitor experience. Alex, can you talk to us about how it is that you design solutions for spaces where you have to either incorporate windows in new and unique ways or somehow convince a client and or exhibition design firm that they can't have what they want? Mm, yes, in Arctic Museum, we I think initially we had more windows and then you guys said that, no, 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 we don't want them. So we left them in the central core and we left them in one of the areas that you actually find a nice solution to to uh, include them into your experience area. But yeah, there are some buildings that by nature has to be without windows, like a retail malls. With one of the retail malls, we found a quite interesting solution by wrapping the facade with a tensile fabric. It's a folded fabric. It represents ballerina skirt. And it was the main idea because it was in a city and the city was famous for its ballet. And it looks fantastic even without windows. So buildings without windows is possible. It's a challenge, but it's an interesting task to find a solution. Well, I love that solution because, as you mentioned, if the city had a large focus on ballet, taking that narrative and using it around the building continues that story. I just think that's like a, a wonderful design solution and content moment. Let's focus on inspiration for a moment. Do you have a style and where do you get your inspiration from for a project? Well, I think there are a few key drivers. First is environment. I think the building needs to fit with the surrounding location. I don't say it has to blend with it. No, it can stand on its own, but with respect what's surrounding it. Materials is another source of inspiration. As I mentioned earlier, the tensile fabric that we used on one of the retail malls. Historic context, if, if there is a site history, 
Shapes, if you're looking to design an interesting, exciting buildings, then shapes of the building could be uh, another source of inspiration. I've got to say, I'm really, really happy to hear you talk about not having this, you know, sort of signature that you just stamp on every single project. And it's making me think of a question that I received from a student not long ago who was very, very concerned. And he pulls me aside and he's like, Professor... I don't have a style and what am I going to do? I'm never going to get work. I don't have a look. And I told him, you're doing the right thing because it's not about you. It's about the audience. It's about everything. It's about the context and the story. It's really, really about those things. And, And no one should ever go into an exhibition and ask themselves about the exhibition designer. It's our job to allow everything else to speak for itself. I would love to hear an example, Alex, of a time when you have been able to work with a client, the experience design company, and you all worked together really, really well. What was at the heart of the success? Well, I think the latest project we had with Laura Mipsum Arctic Museum was a nice example of a collaboration between architects, experienced designers, and the client. Client is definitely one of the key factors because client never sort of pushed in terms of design. They were happy with our competence, with our experience, and they left it entire to us. So... Maybe one of the key factors that we knew each other before starting this project, we sort of on the same wave. So we worked together, respecting each other's opinion. And it's, I think the result is, is quite nice. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you mentioned the client and their role is so key. They need to listen to the consultants, to the people with experience. Oftentimes, if it's a very large institution, some of our clients is the first time ever doing this. We need to collaborate with them. They need to also trust and collaborate with us. I think, Brenda, we need a whole other podcast about getting a client to trust you and how do you do that? Because it is a real skill and it's a real effort and sometimes you win and sometimes you don't. We're going to get a lot of caller comments for this one. Yeah, we actually had experience with a client. It was plot of airport when client had a vision on the how the airport needs to be designed. And in a design brief, they said that they want to have a flat roof. And when we started with the first design ideas, we realized that it's a box shape and all we do is just skinning that box. It's just like a facade design. It's not, uh, it's not, um, it's, we're not designing a building and we, I don't remember why, but for some reason we decided to ignore the uh, the client's vision, and uh, we <laughs> we come up with a arched roof like a bridge going from front to the apron where the airplanes are. So the idea was a sky bridge, and we we thought that at least if we don't win the competition, at least we have something that we we not feel ashamed of. You know, we can we can be proud of our concept. And when client saw all 11 proposals, all other architects, they were following the brief and they did a flat roof. And our building was the only one different, completely different. And then client thought, hmm, do we really want to have a flat roof? And we won the competition. 
I would just imagine that at some point you have to determine, and it's great in a way if it can come up in the bid, will you be able to collaborate with your client if right out of the gate the ask is unreasonable or completely lacking in vision? So if the client was not amenable to the change that you had proposed, I can well imagine that you still, you know, dodged a bullet perhaps because... You know, you could have won the competition, but been utterly miserable or never been able to really truly collaborate or work together. And, you know, a successful collaboration is essential for a successful project, I think. I even had experience when client with some residential projects that a client uh, had an initial idea from done by other architect and they would approach us and say, look, we like the areas, the plan, but we don't like the facade and architects don't want to change their facade. They, it's, they said it's their vision and they, they just uh, refused to, to do anything. So we have the experience when client approached us and asking to redesign someone's design. It's an interesting experience, I must say. Now, I'd love to get uh, just a slight shift of perspective on this and ask you, Alex, what do our listeners need to know about working with an architect? Well, I think it's like with any design team when you need to collaborate with different parties. It's just respect each other's opinions, but uh, mind your your vision as well. It's probably like uh, playing in a music band. If band is playing jazz and you're trying to play country, uh, then it, it won't it won't fit uh, with the with the rest of the band, and you will be just kicked off. All. Uh, members of the team, they play different music instruments, but at the end, it sounds like a proper jazz. So working with architects is just not to push your ego and not to allow to, for architects to push their ego first. It's, it's, it's respect at the end, I think. Yeah, I love that analogy to playing in a band. I think that's exactly how it feels. Everybody has the different competencies, experiences, and job to do. And they all have to work and respect each other and know those boundaries. I have a quick question about, you know, I think you're a unique architect, Alex, because of your history, like you did structural and civil engineering. So when we've got all this technical equipment, we've got tons of screens, we've got all our watch out, all our hardware. And, you know, often it's forgotten and it's, oh, you just need this amount of space. But you're always planning and uh, making space for us. So can you talk a little bit about your background and how it really helps make sure that the boring stuff is remembered from a structural engineering perspective? Uh, yes, I started structural and civil engineering first. I got my diploma and I realized that it's not really what I want to do. It's a bit boring and I was uh, looking for something more creative. And architecture was the closest sort of thing. And it blends quite well. On all my projects, I do structural design. All the technical areas, they actually come from experience, but at the later stages, when structural engineers, mechanical, electrical engineers joining the team, it's always a fight. They, they need a room. They need a, a space to run their ducts. And at the design stage, I sort of can predict where it's going to be and how it's going to be run just at the concept level. You know, I'm not, I'm not an expert, but I have a general idea how it works. So that, that how it works from my, from, from me. 
it's fantastic from our perspective because we don't walk in during a build and see a bunch of ducks that weren't supposed to be there, but now have to be there because nobody's thought about it. So I think having that skill and that expertise really sort of fulfills that gray area between us and you that often is sort of left and forgotten about and really enables us to really design and build what we say we're going to design and build. There's no bait and switch. There's no changing. There's no large structural problems that come up that mean we only have to have one bathroom just to bring it around to bathrooms again. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's down to client. If they want at the concept stage, they can invite structural and uh, they can invite mechanical electrical engineers just to do a concept on structure and mechanical electrical. It helps a lot at the end. And when you think about the future in your work, what are you excited about? Um, new countries. I think exploring new cultures uh, is interesting and learning from those cultures and uh, designing something that we never experienced before is quite interesting. So yeah, uh, that's, I think, the future I see for Burobitus. Do you have any solid advice for young architects? It's not an easy job, I would say. We do lots of concept, we do lots of competition, and I think we, we maybe are one out of 10, one out of 20. So, so many efforts and uh, thoughts and designs, they're never going to be implemented, never going to be realized. So it's a hard thing to do and be prepared that you're not going to be, you're not going to win on every level. And that can be demotivate i must say but if you're prepared for that then um, go for it why do you like being an architect then alex it's it's very exciting i must say it's like a message to future you leave something behind Uh, you you, you're not gonna leave uh, that long but your building's gonna leave and people gonna use them it's it's an extremely nice feeling it just gives a warmth inside and it gives a strength to to carry on. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope at the very least you all look at bathroom design in museums in a different way. And at most, the architects listening will recommend to their clients to bring in the experienced design team at the beginning, not after the building has been designed. You're here. So thank you, Alex, so much for thank joining you, us. Alex. Thank you. Now we're going to do a double take where we focus on things we heard, read and saw in the media that are noteworthy and we want to punctuate. So, Abby, it is not just us who are obsessed with, as you call it, the loo. July 29th, the American Alliance of Museums put out on their blog the best museum bathrooms according to museum people. And I highly recommend this read. So in this blog, you'll read through if it's the Smith College Museum of Art or if it is the John Michael Kohler Arts Center, you will read about a number of different bathrooms that are designed by artists and that include things such as objects from museum collections. Oh, I love that. At the Mariners Museum and Park, they have panels in their stalls that explain bathroom elements on ships and about how to use the bathroom at sea. (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't want to do that? That's fantastic. It is fantastic. It's like putting you in the position of being at sea. (laughs) Never thought about what that would be like to go to the bathroom. 
at the Glore Psychiatric Museum. According to Ann Bennett, they are nightmare-inducing bathrooms, but in a good way. They are artworks that, uh, according to Sarah Elizabeth Wilson, they are awesome, but the clown in optical illusion bathrooms are the best. I think I should just leave it at clown and let all of our listeners imagine for themselves what they would encounter in that particular bathroom. There's a very interactive bathroom at the Denver Art Museum, which sings row, row, row your boat while you're washing your hands. And uh, I think if you can get them all activated at the same time they're sort of singing this canon so you can obviously spend a lot of time in the bathroom playing along with that that was developed by denver artist jim green who's also known for a laughing escalator at the colorado convention center so again talking about sound and how you can use sound to interact (laughs) i just i have to conclude my appreciation for bathrooms actually this one is not in this particular article but this is my favorite bathroom experience This is like true confessions time. My favorite bathroom experience was at the Boston Children's Museum where they had inside the bathroom displays of scat, as they put it, of different animals. So you know what scat is, right? Do they, they don't say that in in the UK. Oh gosh, poop. They had displays of of animal poop. (laughs) (laughs) So talk about being topical and on theme in every environment. Talk about extending the experience in the story. I love it. So I think overall our point is the devil's in the details. And if you're designing an experience, you have to design the whole experience. There shouldn't be a blind spot. Here, here. So I hope that our listeners will do a double take at least next time they're sitting in the bathroom of a museum and really decide, is this a good experience or not? Don't miss an opportunity. And a bathroom is not an interstitial space, although interstitial spaces are critical. Every stairwell counts, every hallway matters. Definitely use the bathroom. People are captive audiences, folks. Make good use of them. Tell your story. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Matters of Experience is produced by Lorem Ipsum Corp. Please tune in next week for another conversation. Thank you all for listening.